This is your daily real estate syndication show, and I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today is a highlight show that's packed with value from different guests around a specific topic. Don't forget to like and subscribe, but also go to lifebridgecapital.com where you can sign up to start investing in real estate today. I hope you enjoy the show. What is Agent Ignite? Are you wondering how you can make more money and create a competitive advantage for yourself and your clients in this ever-competitive real estate industry? Agent Ignite is the key to furthering your knowledge, establishing your expertise, and positioning yourself as a go-to expert. They deliver new and relevant knowledge so you can expand your clientele, close more deals, and ultimately increase income. Each month features a new guest speaker who will deliver on what is most relevant for your business. As a member of DMAR's Market Trends Committee, an avid champion for building wealth through real estate, and a self-proclaimed data geek, Nicole will share market trends and commentary that will add value to you and your clients. Staying up to date on industry statistics coupled with niche topics delivered by industry experts will help you motivate your buyers and sellers and make you more money. Sign up for the next Agent Ignite session at theruthteam.com slash events. That's T-H-E-R-U-E-T-H team.com forward slash events. Our guest is Ivan Madrigal. Thanks for being on the show, Ivan. Hey, Whitney. Thanks for having me, man. It's my pleasure. So what's your suggestion as far as moving then into finding that deal? Or is that where, you know, you found a partner that's working on that? Or were you looking for deals as well? Or did you, you know, wait till you had a certain investor base or a certain amount of soft commitments? What was your plan there? Or maybe from your experience, what would you suggest somebody else do? Well, have a platform, you know, whether it's MailChimp or whether, however you want to do it, you know, some people handwrite it. And have those soft commitments per se from those investors say, oh, yeah, you know, if, if a deal like this comes across, I'll invest and try to have an idea of more or less in what range would you invest, you know, between 25 and 50, between 50 and 75, between 75 and 100. The more you know from these investors, the better it is. And, and that goes as far as knowing whether there will be accredited or not accredited. And, you know, the more you know, the better. If you don't know that, that's fine too, but at least have some sort of idea of how much they can commit if the right investment comes across. And then you start creating your database. It, like I said, whatever you, you choose that you want to create it. I use MailChimp for my mail outs and for my reservations and, and investors to register. I use Syndication Pro. Right? That's the platform that I'm using with, you know, from Jacob. So that's how I have my investors. I have them go into my website and go create a login and register on my website on that platform. So I keep tab through that platform, Syndication Pro. But it could be done through anything because you could do it manually if you want to. <laughs> I've heard uh, of someone that actually has a notepad with names of people written down and things like that. So, hey, by all means, you could do it any way you want. <laughs> do they actually mail letters to? No, I'm just kidding. So I liked how you said you ask, you know, you might ask an investor like on a, a range. And, and I've heard that said before too, you know, because it's, it's different than you say, well, how much? Are you willing to invest? You know, well, that's a lot different question than well, what range are you looking to invest? You know, it's like not near as much pressure. Is that what you've right. experienced? Yeah, well, it, I like to have a range so I have an idea of how much money I could raise at, you know, at a particular time. Like I said, this is what I found out recently. I'm learning the ropes a little bit more intricate on raising a lot of money because it, I mean, you could raise two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars without a problem, probably with the people that you know around, friends and whatnot. But if you want to raise 
a lot more money for a bigger deal, you really need to have a database of people because there's there's always going to be those that tell you yes, but then I'm tied up here and there. Or, you know, I can't come up with that much liquidity quickly now or whatever the reason may be. And not all deals are the same. Not all investors are the same. Some investors want to keep their money tied up in a deal for four or five years. And then some might want to keep it there for, for longer. And the deal you might find might be a deal that doesn't have an extra strategy for 10 years instead of four or five. So with that goes also knowing those investors as well. So these guys don't want to be tied on a deal for 10 years. And this is a 10-year play. I'm not even going to bother. Or I'm going to tell them, hey, listen, I know this. you don't want to be tied on for, for so long, but would that be of interest? But knowing beforehand what their objectives are is also important. So tell me the asset classes that you all are looking at now and how you're sourcing deals. We're looking at multifamily and mobile home parks. Those are the two asset classes that we look at. We send mail outs and we make phone calls. And we've gotten a lot of responses from mobile home parks back to us, owners calling us. So it seems that we keep stumbling upon more mobile home parks and I love the asset. So that's the one that we are concentrating the most on right now. And there is a lot of factors on why we concentrate a little bit heavier on that. So what size properties are, are you mailing to? It's 60 plus lots. We mail to those and we make phone calls. We personally call a lot of uh, park owners and position ourselves as we want to buy it. We want to buy the asset. And you know we, we create a follow-up and all that kind of stuff for those that are not ready at the moment. Wow. Okay. We had briefly talked about it before. Just the, the type of response you're getting from you know multifamily owners versus mobile home parks. Man, it's, it's incredible. But I get more mobile home park owners receptive to sell than multifamily. And that's been my experience is to say that that's the way it is. That's just my experience. And it's also I found it a little bit easier to get across a mom and pop that owns a mobile home than a multifamily. Multifamily owner seems to be a little bit more sophisticated. They own it through corporations and, and things like that. And the mobile home park space is a little bit more fragmented. So I've seen that in my experience has been a little bit easier to getting hold of those mobile home park owners, uh, mom and pops that have been running the parks for 15, 20, 30 years. And it, it's just a lot simpler to negotiate with them. And it's not such a hype, even though there's a lot of people that are concentrated on mobile home park now, still doesn't carry that hype that multifamily carries. That, that multifamily seems to be like the flavor of the day kind of thing. But a lot of people are, are, are pushing to buy those assets. And that's what happens when you've got a lot of interested parties that tends to push the prices up. So what are some initial things, you know, whether it's multifamily or mobile home parks and you, or you can pick one or the other that are like an initial deal breaker, you know, so either you're talking to a seller or you get some numbers or you're talking to a broker, either one, but some initial things that are going to say, okay, this is not the deal for us. There's so many things. I mean, it depends on the mobile home park. Or maybe some things that it has to be, you know, maybe would be a better question. Some things that have to be there, you know, just a few key things, maybe before you decide to really dig in deeper. Yeah. On the mobile home park space, we look for parks that are in a large metropolitan area or close to it. We look at median income, it's kind of similar to multifamily. We look at the median income in the area, the population size. We like to see that there's certain amenities within that community, within the immediate you know, five, 10 miles around, you know, like Walmart, Lowe's, things like that. And we're not in the mobile home park space. We don't like parks that are heavily involved in owning the homes. That's a deal breaker for us, unless we feel that there is a good chance to turn those around and sell them. 
But um, our ideal mobile home park is the one that, that the owner of the park does not own any of the houses. The tenants own the houses, and we're just in the business of renting the lots. So that could be a deal breaker. Along with that, there's so many other things that could be a deal breaker. What is the plan if you know if it is a 60 lot property, and let's say there's five that are owned by the seller, uh, you know, or the current owner? Is your plan going to be to get rid of those, or maybe even finance those for the current? owners or residents, or is it going to be to wait till they move and then just get rid of those or put them up for sale? How does that work? You could do rent to own to the existing tenant that's there. Or you could do straight financing if the tenant is willing to buy it. A lot of times buying it will be cheaper than renting the home itself. You structure in a way that's enticing for them to do it. But sometimes you know, you'll be surprised if people don't want to own, they just want to rent, right? So the plan really is to initially approach that tenant that's there and try to uh, work out a deal where they buy that from you and they only pay you lot rent, right? But if that tenant doesn't want to buy it, then of course, when they move out, you try to find someone that's willing to buy it. And you know, there's a lot of variables to that, that the age of the house and things like that have to do sometimes. If it's a very old house, of course, they don't want to buy it. So it all depends. Ivan, what's a way that you all have recently improved your business that we could all apply to ours? Recently, we hired a VA. <laughs> we found that the amount of time that we were spending cleaning up the list that we got from the municipalities, not municipalities, but from the counties, cleaning those lists up and doing all the research that needs to be done to find their owner's information and things like that, that time we could utilize in you know, other things that, that are a little bit more important. So you could hire a VA for a very little amount of money, not too much. And they could work three, four hours a day or three hours a day or 15 hours a week. In our case, ours is working like 15 hours a week. And then they do all the lead work. We gave them a bunch of lists broken down by county and said, okay, these are the parameters. This is what we need. And here's how you find it. Go ahead and clean this list up and just get me the properties that meet this criteria right here. You know, the lot size and the information that I want, everything. We gave them all the criteria. And so we don't have to spend time on that. We'll concentrate on the other things we do. That's working out pretty good for us. Awesome. I couldn't recommend enough, you know, somebody to hire a VA. I've used them many, many, many times now. But what is your best advice for taking care of investors, maybe other than communication? Don't just do a deal to do it. Be patient and make sure that, that you do the right deal. In today's market, there's so much hype going on with real estate and syndications and things like that. And don't manipulate the numbers. If they don't work, don't work. So don't do a deal chasing that carrot because you're not going to last long if you do that. The investors are eventually going to catch up and say, you're not doing this right. They're not going to invest with you again. Our guest is Joel Block. Thanks for being on the show again, Joel. Hey, Whitney, how are you? Doing great, doing great. Thanks for being on the show again and taking time out of your busy schedule. Well, you've probably heard of Joel's name before. He's been on the show, but he was show WS46. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that so you can learn more about him as well. I mean, he's someone that's been in the syndication and hedge fund business for 30 years. He's got tons of experience in this business, and I'm looking forward to getting into the conversation today. But a little about him, an American business executive and professional speaker specializing in the topics of real estate, finance, and sales. He assists attorneys in complex litigation cases involving real estate, securities, and alternative investments. Block's roles involve consultation, litigation strategy, and expert testimony. Block has been cited in media and press outlets, including Entrepreneur, the Los Angeles Times, Wall Street Journal, Forbes Small Business, San Fernando Valley Business Journal, Investors Business Daily, Los Angeles Business Journal, and the San Antonio Business Journal. So he's done all this. He's, he's been in this business about as long as anybody I know, probably. And he's done, I don't know how many hedge funds. And I mean, he 
He knows the syndication business inside and out. I'd also like to mention he has a great YouTube channel you should check out, and he'll tell you more about it as well, I'm sure, especially at the end of the show, and tell you how to find that, where he answers all kinds of listeners' questions. And so people submit questions to him, and he'll make a YouTube video about it and explaining in detail the answers. But Joel, thank you again for your time today, and give the listeners a little more about who you are, possibly, because it's been so long since, since you were on the show, and then let's dive right in. I've been in the syndication hedge fund business for almost my entire career. And in some capacity, I was in venture capital for many years. But all these businesses are really the same because you raise money and then you place the money into some asset with the objective of giving the investors their money back plus more. And that's really what we're all doing, whether we're doing it in real estate, whether we're betting on ventures, businesses, films, whatever we're doing. To me, I look at it all the same. So I came from the CPA business. I learned this business when I was a youngster at Pricewaterhouse. Uh, doing tax work for a giant real estate syndicator. I hated doing the tax work, but I love reading the partnership agreements. And I said, that is the business I want to be in. I want to be a deal maker just like those guys. So I quit the firm and me and another guy did a little teeny apartment building in the late 80s. And I've been involved probably in 40 or more deals now since then. Nice. So, you know, as we were talking to beforehand and looking through some, even some of your videos, there's numerous questions on there that people have sent to you that would be great to cover today. And I look forward to getting into a couple of them. And what is the difference in a retail investor and a professional investor? There's probably a lot of listeners that have like really haven't heard that there's a difference or, or what that even means at all. So I'd love to, you know, just you to elaborate yeah. on that and us talk through that a little sure. bit. I mean, listen, you can pick any of these that you want. Here's the thing is that 99% of people are retail investors. And that means they buy their investment from somebody else and they sit around and they're used to having absolutely no control over the outcome. So what happens is they buy something and they hope that it goes up. Professional investors do not hope anything happens. When our car runs low on gas, we don't bang on the gas tank and hope that it springs back to full. That's just not what we do. What we do is we activate a strategy. We run into a gas station, fill up the tank, keep going. And that's what professional investors do. Very, very different from retail investors. And that's not to say that there's a couple of really good retail investors out there. But for the most part, the pool of retail investors, they just don't have a lot of insight. They don't have a lot of information. They don't have a lot of ability to really control what happens. The whole syndication business, the fund management business, the the business that we're all in together is we control a lot of what we do. Now, when you bet on deals in the stock market, you have almost no control. I mean, you really are just doing your best guess, whether it's scientific, algorithmic, or whatever it is. But in real estate, we have a lot of control. And professional investors do a really good job of controlling the outcome of an investment. If there's 10 houses on a street and one is underpriced, it's almost like that house lights up in green for those of us that are in this business and we know what we're doing. Because we look at it, every house is worth 100. We can buy this one for 50. It's going to cost us 20 grand to fix it up, five grand to, to sell it or do whatever we got to do. And we're going to net 25. And we can do that over and over and over again with great accuracy. And retail investors just can't do that. That's something that professional investors do. And that's the reason that this whole industry exists is that retail investors want to get on the coattails and ride us into the sunset because they'll give us their money and share the profits because we know how to do things that they don't know how to do. And that really, at the end of the day, 
is the big difference between retail and professional investors. Yeah, that, I mean, that's really our passive investors or limited partners, isn't it? I mean, they're busy doing their day job or that they're really good at or their business that they're focused on every day. And they don't even want to know all the ins and outs of the real estate business or funds of, of any kind. But like you said, they want to know that person like us that, that does and that has control over that investment. You know, sometimes they do want to get involved, which doesn't usually work out well for them. (laughs) But what's interesting about what you just said is that these are passive investors. And a lot of people, especially in the, the real estate promoters, the people selling courses will call everybody an investor. It's not accurate to call everyone an investor because there are passive investors and there are active investors. We are active investors. We take title to the real estate. We actually work the real estate. We do the job that we need to do. And by the way, whether it's real estate, film, entrepreneurship, whatever it is, whatever category, it doesn't matter because the money works no matter what. I look at money as a tool. To me, it might as well be a shovel or a hammer. And I use that money to make more money. Regular people don't have the same kind of relationship that syndicators and money managers do. In fact, one of the things that I always say is that the money is not made in the real estate. Everybody thinks it's the real estate. It's not the real estate. The money gets made in the money. And if you control the money, you can buy all the real estate you want. So you have to control the money in order to you know move along and do what it is that you want to do. I like looking at the money like a shovel. I haven't heard that analogy before, but you know, and you're talking about how money is made in the money. You have to control the money to be able to buy the real estate. Like you said, I mean, it's, it's smart. So it's really looking a little deeper. But you know, thinking about those different types of investors, and I noticed another question too that someone had asked you all, and I thought you could elaborate. You know, it's like that family versus outsider. Which one of these types are the best investor for you know when we're syndicating any kind of commercial deal? Like everything, there's pros and cons. And so should you go get outside money or should you get family money? Well, listen, almost everybody starts with family money. And the reason they start there is because that's the low-hanging fruit. When you're first getting organized, you probably have a mediocre track record. Maybe you have a light track record. You don't have a lot going on. Your family's probably going to overlook that because they're going to try and give you a leg up as best they can. If something goes wrong, they're probably going to give you a little easier time. Now, that doesn't mean that your own grandmother wouldn't sue you under certain circumstances. And that happens. And by the way, that's the reason that you need a private placement, you know, the legal documents and all the stuff that attorneys prepare. And I'm not an attorney, but all these documents that legally attorneys prepare because it really tries to slow down lawsuits and tries to prevent you from having these problems. And that, you know, is whether you have one investor or a hundred, and it doesn't matter if that investor is your grandmother or a stranger Anybody could cause lots of different problems under some circumstances. So back to family versus outsider. Family is a really great place to start. I don't know how much money your family has. If they have a great amount of money, that's fine. The truth is, though, if you rely on your family, you never really build a business. It may be very simple. It may be more convenient to do it that way, but it's not really a business because you don't have outsiders that are third parties that are kind of arm's length giving you capital. I will say, though, that uh, as you start to move away from your family, unless your family has extraordinary means... You know, you start having the ability to leverage the track record that you've built with your family money into bigger deals, bigger opportunities where you're raising more capital from more people. And then you really start to create a base of people that is much larger, much more diverse, and then is going to serve you way into the long term. You don't want to be concentrated with one or two or three investors. You really want to spread it out. There are people, one of the other kind of the, the kind of the ancillary question to family or outsiders is should you get a whale, a giant investor, or a bunch of small ones? Certainly, it's probably easier to get a whale, but that whale is probably going to exercise a lot of control over your business, whereas a bunch of small people will not. 
The other thing is that whale, if the person has a temper tantrum or a bad day or it dies or something happens to them, you're hit by a bus, your whole business goes away. So you don't always want to take the shortcut. Sometimes doing it a little harder is a little better and you just have to do it the right way that works for you. Yeah, that's the idea of like having all your eggs in one basket and that one large investor. We want those investors, of course, but I appreciate how you say, you know, we, we don't just want that one. Here's the thing is that let's say you find one of these big guys, you'd be better off to spread that person across five deals instead of getting five million in one deal, spread that person across five deals at a million apiece, limit the amount of control that that person has in any single deal so that they can't vote you right out of business and control everything. And I mean, some people would say, well, why even syndicate? I got this big guy that's just going to give me the money. Well, here's the thing is that that guy's going to probably demand that you take all your profit on the back end, which is fine. But syndicators typically get paid in two distinct ways. One is for being smart, which is your back end profit. And that's fantastic. That's how we make the majority of our money. But we also have to keep the lights on. We have to take fees for our time. So if you've got to hire a real estate broker, that real estate broker might as well be you if you're properly licensed to do that in your state. If you need a property manager, you could hire one or it might as well be you, the, the promoter, if you're properly licensed to do that in your state. If you're going to need a repair and maintenance company, there's no reason you can't set that up. As long as you're disclosing all these things in your operating agreement to your investors, you're going to be okay. And that's what attorneys do is they lay these things out so that you're properly organized. And large investors are simply not going to allow you to take those fees. And partly they do it sometimes to be a little bit mean-spirited. They want to put the thumb on you a little bit because sometimes if they can squeeze you, they may end up making a little more money that way and throw you out of business. So you really have to think about your long-term business interest and not necessarily do what is easy in the first five minutes of your career because the patterns that you set up are going to last a long time and they're going to serve you well if you do a good job. Thank you for being a loyal listener of the Real Estate Syndication Show. Please subscribe and like the show. Share it with your friends so we can help them as well. Don't forget, go to lifebridgecapital.com where you can sign up and start investing in real estate today. Have a blessed day. 